Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We are, are back in, in this great book. We took a little bit of a break, I guess, with the... Uh, well, we were out for a week, um, then I think we came back and we had one week where we had our, uh, our question and answering, and then, um, and then we're back in, in it tonight, so uh, hopefully... Not everybody's forgotten everything in the book, and we've got some memory of, of where we're at or what's been going on. We'll be in, in chapter 22. Alright, let's just begin by reading the first five verses. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst, so that her time may come, and that, and that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed, and defiled by the idols that you have made, and you have brought your days near, the appointment time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations, and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled, you are full of tumult." We'll stop there and we'll, we'll kind of take it section by section. But in this chapter, God will, through Ezekiel, present an indictment of sins against Jerusalem. He'll do this before He brings this final judgment here in this chapter. Now there, there was a previous chapter, an indictment of Israel, back in chapter 20. There God had given the people basically an historical indictment. He made clear that their sins were not just a one-time occurrence in that chapter. He hadn't just lost patience for them for the first time that they had messed up, right? It had been a pattern for the people of Israel. In this passage, the indictment is very specific though. It's very specific to this generation and these people who would hear it. This indictment will bring sure judgment because there was not one to stand in the gap between the sin and the people of Jerusalem. The title of my sermon tonight is One Standing in the Gap. One Standing in the Gap. You'll understand that as we get towards the end of the, of the chapter. In verses 1-5, through five, as we read, God has sent Ezekiel to judge Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is generally a, a representation of the whole nation of Judah or the whole nation of Israel. That's commonly used interchangeably, those two in the Old Testament. But to give you a modern perspective, we can just kind of think of New York City. In America, or San Francisco in America. There, there are pockets in America where those two cities don't represent th- those areas or the, the areas accurately. Those two cities don't represent those areas accurately, but I think as a whole, those two cities are a representation of the society in America. Now, many in Alabama would strongly disagree with that, but I still stand behind that statement. And I certainly think that those two cities are a picture to the world of what America is, what society is in America at this point. And it was no different at this point in the history of Judah and Jerusalem. That Jerusalem was a picture of the society in Israel, there in, in, in Judah. Now, at this point in the history of Judah, most of the land had been invaded. It had been conquered, and they, most people in the land had been taken captive in those first two waves in the Babylonian invasion. 
So Jerusalem is one of the last remaining cities in Judah. So that is another reason why they are specifically, specifically addressed here, because they are the capital city and they're one of the last remaining places there in, in Judah. But like I said, Ezekiel is sent to this city to judge them, to be the judge. Now God is really the judge, but Ezekiel will be his mouthpiece, right? And he will be the one uttering these indictments. So just as in a court, when, when a, a defendant comes before the court, or comes before the judge, he's charged with a crime, they're brought before the judge, and, and the judge reads the details of that charge, or charges. That is the indictment. The defendant then can plead guilty or not guilty, based off of uh, the reading of the indictment. If they plead not guilty, then they proceed forward to defend themselves. Here in America, a person is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And most of the time, as the indictment is read, those defendants will plead not guilty and then uh, they'll go forward and they will try to defend themselves, have someone defend them uh, or the charges against them. And the judge, as they read that indictment, they really don't know the facts, the, the surrounding facts. They know the details of the indictment and the facts that are listed in that indictment, but they don't really know any other facts outside of that. They just know the indictment. Well, that's not the case here, right? That's not the case with Yahweh. It's not the case with Jerusalem. Yahweh is well aware of every single sin, every single atrocity that they had committed. And even if they wanted to plead not guilty they would have no defense to put on. There was no excuse. They were guilty, and God is about to make that clear. These first five verses, they, they are really an overall indictment of the city. Then God begins to seek, speak more specifically with specific indictments. He addresses many or really all aspects of the society there in the city. He goes from top to bottom, from poor to rich. What is the end result of this? They are all wicked. They are all corrupt to the core. The first two indictments here that we read are bloodshed, which is another way of saying murder, really, and idolatry. Those are the two primary beginning indictments. And these two really set the the tone for the rest of the chapter, and they set the tone for how wicked this society had become. Look, when a society departs from God and turns to idolatry, then all kinds of wickedness will abound, right? All kinds. Murder, though, is probably the chief outcome of an abandonment of following God. We just heard this weekend how Romans talks about the progression of a society into wickedness and into sin. Eventually, the wicked start inventing sins because the the normal sin no longer satisfies them, right? No longer satisfies their depravity. They need more to satisfy themselves. Now, Israel here is at the, the tail end of this process described there in Romans. And the only restraint really from them going any more evil or doing anything more wicked would just be their ability or their lack of ability to carry out what is in their minds or what is in their hearts. There are two connections here between these two sins originally named, this bloodshed and idolatry. The first is, these two sins, they represent a complete abandonment and trespass of God's law for the Jew. The, the first ten, or the, the not first ten, but the ten commandments, as we, we know them, are, are summed up in laws concerning God and in laws concerning fellow man. The, the first four are laws concerning relationship, our relationship to God. 
And the last six are, the, are laws concerning the relationship to man, our relationship to man. So to be guilty of idolatry and murder is to have violated them all to the furthest extent. And that summed up the society here in Jerusalem at this point. Completely wicked. The second connection between these two is how idolatry and bloodshed were one and the same often. It was a common practice by this point in Judah to sacrifice children to false gods, right? That's murder. No matter how we want to term it today, it's murder. So their idolatry was murder in many cases, right? So they're directly connected. We see here in verse 2 that the city was called a, a bloody city. So the blood, bloodshed here had become so rampant that she was known as the bloody city. It was as if their chief aim in life was to shed blood. Now, from what I understand reading commentators, it's possible that this was not just a name which God uses here in this passage, but one in which all of the surrounding nations thought of or knew of Jerusalem, a bloody city. And this is the exact language used, this bloody city of Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh, if you can go back and listen to, to that sermon, but the people of Nineveh, they were some of the most bloody and bloodthirsty, barbaric people to have ever lived. And here we have Israel, Jerusalem specifically, being called in, put in the same, the same frame as them, the same place as them. They are, they are a bloody city as well. They're barbaric. They're murderers. Therefore, Jerusalem had brought condemnation on themselves. Now, as we read through this, and we read through this chapter, we're reading judgment language here, right? And I know we've heard the same language quite a bit as we've gone through this book. These warnings of impending judgment. I know this is not a new message as we've sat here every Wednesday night nearly and heard messages on Ezekiel and heard God's message to them. After a while, I assume and I know, it can be easy sometimes to kind of start tuning that out a little bit. We've heard it so often. It's just natural to kind of think, you know, I'm hearing the same thing over and over, right? But let me impress this upon you as we work through this and as we think about this. These warnings, they show us two things. These constant and consistent warnings. The first thing they show us is that God is merciful, right? I mean, warnings of judgment don't seem like mercy, But that's exactly what they are. They are God's mercy allowing wicked sinners time to repent. Look, God had every right to bring whatever judgment He saw fit on Israel at any time that He wanted to, exactly as soon as they turned away from Him. I mean, He had every right to do that if He wanted to. But despite His indignation and hatred of their evil, He still showed abundant patience and mercy by withholding ultimate judgment and by giving warnings over and over and over to these people. And we are hearing those warnings repeated as we go through these sermons. So I don't want us to lose sight of that. That, That's God's mercy. Okay, It's important. We need that same mercy. We receive that same mercy. The second thing we see in this is that God doesn't change His mind. And he cannot be fooled. His message remained the same to these people. Generation after generation, specifically to this generation, judgment is coming. It's, it's, it's on the door. 
It didn't change. His mind didn't change. This, this message didn't change because some priest made it seem like there was real worship. Some prophet gave some false message that God didn't give, and so God had felt like He had to honor that or that He you know, would follow that. No, God's message was the same consistently. It never changed. Now, what would be the root of Israel's sin here? It's pride. The, the root of all sin, really, is pride. Israel, though, was a very prideful nation, right? So prideful. They believed that they were the greatest of all nations. And, and as we work through this, we will see that to, how that is addressed. But they believed that nothing they could do, and, and I think we've seen this as we've gone through the book and as we've gone through other Old Testament books and studied the history of Israel and Judah, but they believed nothing they could do could change how great they were, how, how much God loved them, and how He would always honor and bless them. They had God's favor, and so He would always accept them and exalt them, really, is what they thought. They had failed to realize that their God-given calling, though, was to exalt Him, not themselves. They were to do that, in part, by showing other nations what a nation set apart by God looked like, right? What a holy nation looked like. But in their arrogance, they became like all the other nations instead. And yet they still continue to be puffed up towards all these other nations, these Gentile nations. And for the most part, they flat out hated Gentile nations. And as we narrow into the city of Jerusalem, those in Jerusalem seem to be on the far end of that scale of pride and arrogance. Not only did they believe that they were greater than all other nations, they believed that they were even greater than their own countrymen. I mean, by the time we get here... By the time we get to this third wave of captivity from Babylon, Jerusalem, like I said earlier, was one of the last remaining cities. And they should have seen all of this working up to this point, again, as God's mercy, and as God's warning to them, which it was. But instead, they saw this as God's favor towards them, right? Oh, he, we're the best. He's, just, he, he's preserving us because we're, as Brian says quite often, the creme de la creme, right? We are the best of the best. God was not saving them, though, or favoring them. That was not His purpose. He was allowing them to go as far as they wanted to go in their sin. And in doing so, He was showing just how depraved humanity can be. Even those who were given God's Word, who were given God's blessings and protection, who had the temple where the very presence of God dwelled, even those were not immune to sin or wickedness when left to themselves. And so in light of their pride, God was about to humble them. They thought themselves better than all the other nations, but God was about to make them a mockery to all the other nations. All the other pagan countries were about to look at them and laugh, basically. I'm sure Israel had, had boasted to these other nations before, boasted of how they couldn't fall, how God would not allow them to be defeated and that could have been true. That, that, that was true as long as they were faithful to Him, right? But again, they boasted in their own merits. They boasted in their own righteousness and their own greatness. And so God would show them that He owed them nothing and that they were nothing apart from Him. An interesting part of this 
This judgment, it comes here in in verse 5, this this pronouncement of judgment. According to Lamar Cooper, the Hebrew here could be translated, Old defiled of the name, abounding in tumult. The name there being a reference to Yahweh. And so as the people of Yahweh, not only had they defiled themselves and made themselves a mockery to the pagan nations around them, they had made God's name a mockery to the pagan nations around them. And that is the greatest travesty, travesty of all. And then verses 6-12 through 12 we read, Behold the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. And, and as we go through this, just really let it sink in the indictment here that sins here in Jerusalem. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. So God issues this multiple count indictment here. Multiple sins, multiple issues within the society of the city of Jerusalem. He addresses, to begin with there in verse 6, the princes. So He starts at the top, so to speak. Now the princes here, it could refer to royalty or kings, as it has before and as I think it will as we, we move forward. Uh, or it could refer to all civil leaders and the kings. It certainly includes the royalty that encompasses them, but it, it could also include the civil leaders. Now this shedding of blood, so we, we see it goes all the way to the top, right? This royalty. It wasn't just a problem among the common people. The king, who was supposed to be the example to the nation of what it meant to live godly, was generally as wicked as anyone else, as we've seen the history of Israel and Judah. God says that they are bent on it. Meaning that they wanted to. It was a desire of theirs. They tried to. Then God addresses the next indictment, that of dishonoring parents. Look, God has put certain boundaries in place to protect society. Entities which are in place to keep order. You have the government and the rulers which God has placed in power as one form of check. You also have those who have been tasked to be peacekeepers. We obviously refer to them today as law enforcement as a general rule. But on the front line, and the most important of those entities is the family. Parents are the first line of defense for a society And parents and family, they are also the first place that Satan attacks to try and bring chaos. When there is no longer respect for parents, then you can't expect respect for authority anywhere else. It's going to begin to disintegrate everywhere else with enough time. I think we are seeing and have seen the proof of that in our own society. And when there is no respect for authority, then chaos is going to abound. But not only had the family unit been destroyed in Jerusalem, but one of, those, one of two, the two things in which God repeatedly told Israel was important to him was also ignored. To care for those who couldn't properly care for themselves, 
the orphans and the widows and to care for the foreigner or the sojourner. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 and 22, this, this command is clearly issued. They, the children of Israel were told, were told, You shall not wrong a sojourner in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. But look, when the family unit has been destroyed and, and respect for authority has gone, there is no way you can expect the sojourner, the foreigner, or the helpless one to have any form of respect either. They stand no chance. But there is a warning there in Exodus attached to this command as well, this, this command to help not hurt the, the foreigners and not to hurt the helpless. Verse 23 goes on to read, If you do mistreat them and they cry out to Me, I will surely, that is definite, I will surely hear their cry and My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So, God would make them just as those they mistreated, right? He would turn them into widows and into foreigners and to orphans. We, as we continue on, we see that they hated the Sabbath. And that should be shocking to us, right? That the nation of Israel hated the Sabbath. I mean, they were people that God had set apart to worship Him and to be blessed by Him. And the Sabbath was given to them as a blessing and for rest, but it was also given to them as a sign that they are set apart from these other nations as a people who worship the one true God. In hating and abusing it though, they had, they had defied God's authority and they had failed to set themselves apart as His people. We see here that these men, they worshipped on the mountains on, or the high places, as we commonly see it referred to, where all of the idols were, at, were set and, and at. When, when we read of this eating in the mountains and being on the mountains, that's, that's idol worship on, on the high, in the high places. Next, Ezekiel indicts Jerusalem of all kinds of sexual sins. He indicts them of adultery against their father, so presumably with their mother or their stepmother, or mother-in-law even. Sins violating the law as to when a physical relationship was allowed, even within a marriage during the menstrual cycle, were, were forbidden. And they, they were going forward with that as if they had no care of what God's law was. They're indicted, indicted as to sexual sins by a man against his neighbor's wife, against his daughter-in-law, against his sister. So, various forms of incest. The picture of this society is being developed for us, I think, and, and it is grotesque, is it not? This is... This is a grotesque society. Not only were these men murdering, as we read earlier though, and we continue through this, they were not only murdering, but they were murdering by making up lies against others. And then these judges were taking bribes to sentence people to death. Look, the judges were supposed to be honest men, executing justice. But instead, they had no interest in justice and they had no respect for their fellow man who was made in the image of God. They slandered to shed blood, meaning that they were, there were some who were making up lies about others, claiming that they broke the law in such a profane way that they, they needed to be put to death. And they would bring this before the judge and they would either offer a, a bribe or they would lie. They would have enough witnesses to lie about this issue and have what they wanted anyways. They'd still have this person put to death. They did this to gain power, to gain wealth, or purely because they had a bloodlust and wanted to be satisfied. 
We see a perfect picture of this in 1 Kings chapter 21 where, where Ahab, he made up lies against a man by the name of Naboth. He wanted his land and Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. It was his inheritance and he wouldn't sell it to him until he made up lies and had Naboth put to death. Exact same thing that is going on here. Further, we see in our passage that there was extortion against neighbors along with a violation of the law by loaning money to a fellow Hebrew then charging interest, which was strictly forbidden. Look, I mean, as we read through this and we see all the indictments and we see everyone affected by this and everything going on in the society, no one was safe, right? I mean, there was not a person safe in this society from wickedness and from being the victim of wickedness or being a part of the wickedness. Anyone could be a target of all types of atrocities against them, from murder to rape to adultery to extortion to illegal interest. This reads like a modern-day organized crime syndicate basically. In verse 12, though, we see the reason for this. The foundational problem. There in verse 12, we read at the end of it, but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. The foundational problem then was that they had forgotten Yahweh. Despite their blessings and benefits as the people of Yahweh, they had abandoned Him, and so had also abandoned His blessings and His benefits. Even the most basic blessings of an ordered and peaceful society were gone. And and that is what happens as a a nation and a people turn away from God. Even the blessings of a a peaceful society, of an everyday get up and just live your life society without much problem or with, with peace, it goes away. Chaos ensues. So far Israel, or excuse me, Ezekiel has read the indictments. In those first 12 verses, he used the pronoun you 21 times. It was a, it's a clear indication of who the actors were, right? Of who the indictment was against. It was against Jerusalem. It was against Israel. In verses 13 through 22, the pronoun I is used 11 times in reference to Yahweh. And we'll see here a clear indication of who was bringing this judgment. Who was bringing the indictments from verses 1-12. through 12. It wasn't Ezekiel, although he was the mouthpiece. There was to be no mistake, though, no misunderstanding. The indictment was from God. Judgment was coming from God. In verse 13 we read, Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made, and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can, you, can, you, can your courage endure, or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries, and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. And you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In verses 13-16, through 16, God challenges Jerusalem here. He's laid out the indictment, and then He offers this, this challenge, basically, he first shows the nature of his anger here, though, as, as we read, he, he strikes his hands or he struck his hands together. This is just an act of contempt, of, of an anger pictured here by God as his response to their wickedness. But he says, Do you have courage? Basically, uh, are you man enough? You can do all these things against me, you can do all these things against the helpless, against the foreigner. You can be a part of a host of injustices against those who are powerless. Now it's my turn. This challenge is not one that they will escape. They will not be able to choose whether to accept this challenge or not. God has seen enough. He's had enough, and so He will now step in to defend the helpless and to defend His name. And so He says 
to, the, to Jerusalem, do you have the courage to stand against me when my hand comes against you? Do you think you're strong enough to stop me? Is basically exactly what he's asking them. They don't, they don't answer. God answers for them. I have spoken, and I will do. Look, their hearts would faint, their courage would fail, their strength would leave, and they would be scattered among all the nations. There would be no standing against God in their day of judgment. There would be no courage. God was soon to purge them of their wickedness. Hypocritically, professing to be clean and without wrong, these Jews, they would soon be scattered because of their evil among unclean Gentiles. And ironically, God says He would use that to cleanse them. Notice why though, and we've seen this before, why is He going to do this? Well, He's going to do it part in part so that they will know He is the Lord. Even in judgment and in purging of sin, God's going to make something good from it, right? Let's not miss that. Then in verses 17-22 through we read, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you in the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Can you imagine being issued such a, a declaration by God? God describes this process of, of smelting here and, and how that is a representation of what He is going to do in judgment to the nation, to the city of Jerusalem. He calls them dross. And so God compares, again, what He's about to do to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to what takes place in that smelting furnace. A, a smelter, they will gather metals. They will gather bronze or iron or silver and they'll put it into a, a large pot or a furnace and then they'll put intense heat on it until it melts. And as it melts, he'll gather it, keep it all in the middle there to make sure it stays together, no loose pieces. And this metal, it releases impurities in the process. These impurities are called dross. It's waste. Dross is just waste. The useless part of the metal which makes it impure. God has called those in Jerusalem dross here, impure. A waste at this point which would need to be cast away. So God will soon gather in the inhabit, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and will bring intense judgment on them. No one will be forgotten. No one will escape the wrath of God. In this process, He will purify His people. When Babylon invaded the final time, most of the remaining inhabitants of, Ju- of Judah, they retreated to Jerusalem, a city there for protection. But instead of protection and salvation, Jerusalem became the fulfillment of God's prophecy of judgment, right? of His wrath being poured out on them. In verses 23 through 29, we read, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasures and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. 
Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath, so I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lines or divining lines for them, saying, "Thus says the Lord God: When the Lord has not spoken, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice." So here in these verses, God lays basically lays that indictment out one more time, and in doing so, He addresses each group in this society. There in verse twenty-five. The ESV, it reads as though God's addressing the prophets. But, and that's how the Septuagint reads. But according to, to Cooper again, the Hebrew text reads princes there. And that's how the NIV uh, translates it. They follow that, that translation. Most of the other translations do follow the Septuagint and they translate it as, as prophets. So verse 25 could very well be addressing the kings, the, the princes here, royalty. And then verse 26, he addresses the priests Verse 27, the lesser civil authorities are likely who God is addressing here. He calls them princes in, in her midst, which would seem to not include the royalty who lived apart from the people. And in verse 28, he addresses the false prophets. Then finally in verse 29, he addresses the people or the general populace. He begins though in verse 24 by having Ezekiel remind the people that they were in a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in, in, the, in the day of indignation. Drought or no rain, it was a, a common and prominent form of a sign of God's judgment, right? And, and this was just another reason. God is reminding them of another reason why they should have known what was happening and should have believed Ezekiel and Jeremiah over the false prophets, right? Everything pointed to that, but they didn't want to believe it. They wanted to believe in the lies. He repeats all of the evils and atrocities here in these verses which Jerusalem had practiced and which seemingly had become a part of their normal society. Now in the midst of these verses that we read, this, this restatement of the indictments, God adds one additional indictment. In verse 28, God turns to the prophets or the self-proclaimed prophets. Those who claim to be the religious leaders. They claim to have a word from God when in fact they didn't. God had not spoken to them or through them at all. Despite what these false prophets thought, it is a terrible thing to speak on behalf of God when He does not speak, right? When He's not spoken, God would, without doubt, hold them accountable for that. Not only in their temporal lives, but also in eternity. These priests consistently prophesied that God was going to defeat Babylon and the people went to war on these lies, right? They failed to obey God because of these lies. These prophets had whitewashed, as we read, read here, these lies. They did so to make them seem attractive. That's To whitewash something is to make it seem attractive, basically. That's the, the point of it. And it caused these people to be deceived. And, and many women were made widows and children were made fatherless because of these lies. It, it's amazing to see the sovereignty of God, the fulfillment of His, His warnings, come into fruition even through the evil of the prophets, right? That's exactly what we read in Exodus would happen. And, and as these false prophets, they prophesied these lies and the people of Jerusalem believed it, well, it was a, a, the fulfillment of those prophecies. Then in verse 30, God makes this very interesting statement. 
He says, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. He states that he had looked for a man who could build a wall and stand in the gap. A man who could build up a wall against the evil and wickedness and stand in that gap. The picture here is is just of a a wall being a protection for a city and, and all outside attacks. A wall with a gap is no good, right? Someone can, enemy can get through the gap. So where a gap is open, it would have to be repaired or filled. And God is saying that He had sought out a man to be that wall and to be that one to stand in the gap that it might not open and that Jerusalem would be spared from this judgment, be spared from the evil and sin that had taken over the society. There had been men in the history of Israel to this point who had done that. There were judges like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and Deborah who filled that role to some extent. There were kings like David and Solomon early on and late in his life and Hezekiah and Josiah. Godly kings who who filled that role to some extent. Even after David's reign ended and the kingdom split, again, there there were kings that stood in that gap, so to speak. Good kings like Josiah. These men in some degree, some form, they purged the evil from society by the grace and power of God. But that was over in, at this point in, in Jerusalem, in the nation of, of Judah. There was no one to come, no one to stand in that gap, no one to build that wall. Therefore, God's judgment was coming on them. There would be no king, there would be no judge to stop it this time. His fury and His wrath for that wicked society was ready to be poured out And so it would be. Their evil would return on them as we read. God would repay to them exactly what they had done in their idolatry and against the innocent and helpless. Don't think that the wicked escaped. They received their judgment. Now, as we finish, let me just be the first to say that I'm glad this was written to and about Jerusalem or Judah. We've got nothing to be concerned about, right? Look, it it was certainly written to them. And they certainly experienced this specific judgment. But we can certainly learn from this as well. America might be more prideful than Israel was. The pride of Americans is just... It's probably without... It's about equal, at least in, in current society. I mean, current modern day nations... Do we want to test God though? Do we really think that we can beat God? Do we really think He owes us something? I think that's the kind of the, the thought process a lot of times, especially among American Christians. Look, Israel was willing to persist in their sins despite God's repeated warnings. They continued. They continued to rebel. They continued to ignore Him. And I'll give you a spoiler alert the world will continue to do the same thing. That will not change until He returns. But that doesn't have to be everyone. It doesn't have to be us. 
we can heed those warnings. We can warn others to heed those warnings. We should warn others to heed those warnings. Show them the example here. Show them our society and what we have become. Point them to God as the change. He is still merciful. He is still patient. Let me ask this though. Do we think that these problems that we see here and the problems that we see in our society running rampant, do we think those are problems that only exist outside of the church and that they aren't a danger to us? I would warn you strongly that's not the case. Sexual sin has split countless churches and caused major problems in the lives of good Christian families. It has been a major stumbling block to both true believers and the lost world who have been pushed away from church entirely because of these terrible sins. Sin in churches is is not even frowned upon now. It's celebrated and encouraged in most churches. Churches even that used to be called conservative and, and who still might try to call themselves conservative, although they might not be partaking in some of these sins, they are allowing them. They refuse to confront sin in the church and are progressively more and more allowing those who live in sin openly to not just live in it and still be in good standing as members in the church, but serve in leadership roles. Look, don't think that can't happen to us either if we're not vigilant. If we don't stay true to God's Word and heed His warnings. God talks about here in verse 30, someone to stand in the gap. Uh, Someone to build a wall and stand in the gap. And like I said, there were men who filled that role to some extent through the history of, of Israel Off and on, anyways. As we stand here today, as we sit here today as a church and as as believing Christians, there's a role in which we can fill that as well. We can attempt to stand in the gap and build the wall to our family, to our church, to the society around us. We are called to do that as children of God and as those who are bearing His image, right? We don't need to give in to society. We don't need to give in to the evils and, and the wickedness and just slowly let it take us over as well and, and allow this evil to come through the gap and, and become part of us. We are to stand in that gap. We are to preach against it. We are to show lives separate from it. As we read this, it's hard not to see there the judgment of, of Judah, an example or a picture of the, the fiery wrath to come on all of the world as God will purge this world of all dross as He returns. But no matter how much we do, no matter how much we try, there will still be sin, right? Society will continue to sin. Men and women will continue to still be lost. And and we know how that story ends. We know what Revelation tells us and how the world and society will continue to, to progress to a point to where... It's, it's terrible. I mean, we see it as terrible now, but I mean, it will just get worse in that point. So, will it ever change? Will there ever be one to fill that gap completely? To build that wall? Stand in that gap? Will there be a king sit over on the throne of, of David and be that ultimate 
wall, right? The protector. There will be. His name is Jesus. As He serves as King, when He returns and reigns, He will be that wall. He will be that, that gap filler, so to speak. And, and we can look forward to that time, right? There were, there were versions of Him, small versions of Him that we saw through the history of Judah and the history of Israel. But He is the ultimate one. And He will do away with all sin. That's a day to praise, look forward to, and to, to hope for, right? Stand with me.